As the choir comes up today, I want to tell you, first of all, uh, this is not a song that any of you have ever heard, so I printed the words and they're in the bulletin. If There's a little piece of quarter paper in your bulletin if you'd like to read along as we sing. We'll do our best to make sure you hear the words from up here, but just in case you miss any. Um, and it's, uh, this is a, a, an anthem about God becoming a child. We talk about Jesus and we talk about Christmas, but I think we sometimes really need to let it soak into us more what God really did. God became a baby. He became a child. He grew up among us. He's joined to us forever. And uh, I hope that you'll think about that this morning. And uh, there's some extra copies of the words if you like them out in the lobby. I, I hate to throw them away. They're out there if you'd like them. Oh, God, who was a child on earth. in today. Did you notice anything different about Gene and I today? Even Gene's wondering what we're talking about. Well, there we go. This last Tuesday, Gene and I became great-grandparents to little Emma, and uh, we can't wait. They're back in Kansas City. We can't wait to be able to go back and to see our great-grandchild. See? I need my my walker. I'm getting old. And you don't have to agree. <laughs> Lord's been good. Has he been good to you? Good, then I don't have to preach. We're taking a look at an agreement to die. It's kind of a continuation of last week. This year I've celebrated, if you can call it that, 30 years of ministry. The time has flown by fast. It just seems like yesterday I was in college and now 30 years has passed. And I've seen a lot of things that have happened in the 30 years of my time. The one thing that I do regret most of the time is, is standing at so many deathbeds. The funerals. 
knowing what to say, what not to say, how to be with the family. I've watched little children die. I've watched elderly people die. I've seen them die horrible deaths. I've seen them die, if you can call it, a peaceful death. There's one thing that I have noticed in a majority of cases. That a lot of them fight to try to stay alive. There's just something inside of them that says, don't give up, keep going. When uh, Jean's mother was on her deathbed in a, in a nursing home, she was struggling with the family around her. She was struggling to stay alive. And Jean had to lean over to her mother and say, Mom, it's okay to relax and to die in Jesus. And you could see her relax. And then in just a few minutes, she took her last breath. It was a peaceful death. What brings us comfort is the fact that she died in the hope of the resurrection of the second coming of Jesus. We all need that hope. There was one time, on a special occasion, when I was called to the bedside of a man who was on life support system. Now, usually when I've been called to be some, with someone that's on life support system, they're usually in a coma and they can't communicate to you. This one was different in the fact that this man could communicate, could still speak. Although he had tubes down his mouth, it was hard to hear. Wires all over. The system was the only thing that was keeping him alive. When his doctor came in, the man said to his doctor, Doctor, you know that I won't live. You know that this machine is just keeping me going. I make one request, that you just pull the plug and let me die in Jesus. He knew that he would rest in his grave until the second coming of Christ. Very spiritual man. I enjoyed being around him. He always uplifted me. The family was there. I had prayer with this man and his family. And then he asked us to step outside and to go down to the waiting room where we went as the doctor pulled the plug and the man's life ended with no struggle. You see, this man made a peaceful agreement with the Lord to rest in his arms. He didn't fight it. He just believed in that hope of the resurrection. We need to make an agreement to die to self and rest by faith in the arms of Jesus. It sounds easy, but it's a major struggle because we want to fight to maintain control of life in the way that we see fit. We talked about last week about dying to self, and there's a lot of amens. But really, we fight the very God who desires to save us sometimes. At some point, we have to come to an agreement to die to our selfish desires and to let God control our lives. Another term for such an agreement is a covenant. We need to make a covenant with God. The question is, how? Well, we talked about last week about the first step was to be able to look at Isaiah 53. To be able to read, and I said last week that we should memorize Isaiah 53. If you remember, this is the prophecy of how Jesus suffered and died on the cross long before he ever was born as a baby. We have to realize the love of Christ, that he was willing to leave all of heaven to make a decision to die on the cross so that we might have eternal life. 
that decision was not an easy one for him to make. When Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane, he made a request three times in a prayer to his Heavenly Father. Matthew 26, verse 39. He went a little farther and fell on his face. He didn't kneel down quietly. He fell on his face and prayed, saying, Oh, my Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Three times his human nature was fighting to stay alive and to say, Lord, if there's any other way to escape this, please let it happen. There has to be another way that's not so emotionally painful. Desire of Ages, page 753. Satan, with his fierce temptations, wrung the heart of Jesus. This is while he's in the Garden of Gethsemane. The Savior, that's Jesus, could not see through the portals of the tomb. Hope did not present to him his coming forth from the grave a conqueror or tell him of the Father's acceptance of the sacrifice. He feared that sin was so offensive to God that their separation would be eternal. Do you see why he's crying out and saying, My Father, if there's any other way. He couldn't see his own resurrection. He felt like he was facing eternal death. Because the Heavenly Father was not going to accept His sacrifice on the cross. It was so agonizing to Him that He drops to the ground. But Jesus made an agreement in the Garden of Gethsemane, a covenant with His Heavenly Father when He said, Nevertheless, not as I will, but thy will be done. At that moment, Jesus was giving up his human will, that part of him that was fighting the situation to find another way, an easier way to accept the will of his Father, which was to suffer and to die even if it meant he was to die forever. That's what it's like to make a covenant with God to die to self. I want to struggle and to do what I want to do. I want to fight to maintain what I think is a better life. I want to be in control. I don't want to say, nevertheless, not my will, but thine will be done. There's something inside of me that says, don't say that. Don't do it. But Jesus is our example, isn't he? So the next step to learn to die to self is to follow the example of Jesus. He made a covenant to do the will of his Father. So what do we mean? by a covenant. Let's look at a few examples where it talks about a covenant in the Old Testament. Let's go back to Noah's day. Genesis chapter 6 and verse 18. God says to Noah, But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall go into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. Genesis 9, verse 9. And as for me... Behold, I establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you. Genesis 9, verses 11 through 13. Thus I establish my covenant with you. Never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. Never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. 
And God said, this is the sign of the covenant which I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for perpetual generations. I set my rainbow in the cloud and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Now there are many more examples we could use of God making a covenant. But these will give us this kind of a starting point. Let me ask you this question. Who is making this covenant with Noah? God. God is the one establishing the covenant. First with Noah and his family. So a covenant can be directed to just a few people. Later it was made with all the inhabitants that were on the ark and the animals, and then pretty soon it was from one generation to the next that God promised to seal the covenant with a rainbow in the sky. We know that Jesus made a covenant to do the will of the Father while He was praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. But was the covenant God made with us after that and 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 was fulfilled at the cross, that's what we've got to kind of look at. What is this covenant? What is it that God wants to make with us? Hebrews chapter 9, verses 11 through 15. Here's the covenant. When Jesus died on the cross, look what he became. Christ came as high priest of the good things to come with a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot to God, Cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. And for this reason, He is the mediator of the what? A new covenant. Keep that in mind. By means of death, that's His death on the cross, for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant, that those who are called may receive the promise of eternal inheritance. When Jesus died on the cross, that covenant that He made in the Garden of Gethsemane to do the will of His Father, when Jesus died on the cross, He became our high priest. Because of the cross, we have a covenant that's made by God to supply us with the Holy Spirit for the redemption of our sins so that we can obtain the promise of eternal life. A covenant is established. All we need to do is to accept our part of this covenant. Hebrews 7, verses 20 to 25. And inasmuch as he was not made priest without an oath, for they have become priests without an oath, but he with an oath by him who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not relent. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. By so much more, Jesus has become a surety of a better covenant. Also, there were many priests because they were prevented by death from continuing. But He, Jesus, because He continues forever, has an unchangeable priesthood. Therefore, He is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through Him, since He always lives to make intercession for them. Here we have a covenant sealed by the blood of Jesus on the cross which gives Him the right to be our high priest, to minister on our behalf in the heavenly sanctuary. You know, a lot of denominations don't preach that. But in our church, we see in the Bible very clearly that Jesus is our high priest in heaven. And He's there for our benefit to be able to help to bring together a covenant of some sort, a better covenant, a new covenant, 
that God is willing to forgive us of our sins and give to us eternal life, but we have to do our part. Do we need the ministry of Jesus in heaven? Without His ministry, without His shed blood as our sacrifice, we will never be atoned for our sins. So He is our only hope for eternal life. Let me ask you this. Is God the only one who makes a covenant? Well, let's take a look. Exodus 24, verses 3 through 8. It has to be more than one person making a covenant. But let's look at Exodus 24. So Moses came out and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the judgments. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words which the Lord has said, we will do. They're making a covenant. And Moses wrote all the words of the Lord, and he rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes of Israel. Then he sent young men of the children of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord, And Moses took half the blood and put it in the basins, and half the blood he sprinkled on the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read in the hearing of the people, and they said, All that the Lord has said we will do, and be obedient. And Moses took the blood, sprinkled it on on the people, and said, This is the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you according to all these words." Now here the people actually are starting the covenant themselves, but God is going in, but there is a reason for what's taking place. Here's an example where the people of God are making this covenant. They're telling Him, they're saying with their own words, Oh God, You tell us we'll do anything. We will be obedient to everything that You say. They sealed that covenant with an animal sacrifice. We're going to talk a little more about this covenant in a little bit. But first we have to ask the question, what is a covenant? God's amazing grace, page 158, gives us an answer. A covenant is an agreement by which parties, plural, bind themselves and each other to the fulfillment of certain conditions. Thus the human agent enters into agreement with God to comply with the conditions specified where? In His Word. His conduct shows whether or not He respects these conditions. If I am in agreement with a covenant that I'm making with God between my God and myself, I have to be willing to respect the conditions that God lays out according to His Word. It's not what I do, it's what He says that is to be there for that covenant. So it's that agreement, this agreement between the two parties to comply with specific conditions. In the case of a spiritual covenant, it's an agreement between God and His people spelled out with the instructions that are found in the Bible. The outward conduct of both God and the people shows whether or not they are living up to that agreement or that covenant. So you have to accept by faith that the covenant will be fulfilled in the future by both parties or it's null and void. Okay? So I know we often hear this from other people in other churches. Old covenant, new covenant... We hear everybody talk about what in the world is the difference between an old covenant and a new covenant. An old covenant. What is that? People in other denominations says the old covenant is the teachings of the Old Testament including the Ten Commandments and that the old covenant was nailed to the cross. You've heard them say that. Nailed to the cross. They say that the new covenant is salvation by grace and by grace alone. Some even go so far to be able to say that the new covenant teaches once you're saved, you're always saved, and that can never be taken away from you. Let's see what the covenant is. In the, in the book, The Faith I Live By, page 77, there are two covenants. How many? Two, all right? The covenant of grace. 
often called by many Christians the New Covenant, the covenant of grace was first made with man where? In Eden. Oh, now wait a minute. It's supposed to be the New Covenant. It's supposed to be the New Testament. Eden's in the Old Testament. It was first made with man in Eden when after the fall there was given a divine promise that the seed of the woman should bruise the serpent. Who's the serpent? Satan would bruise the serpent's head. The covenant of grace, often called the new covenant, was given right after sin entered the picture. Now let's continue on. To all men, this covenant, to how many people? All, this covenant offered pardon and the assisting grace of God for future obedience through faith in whom? In been born yet. It also promised them eternal life, now listen to this, on condition to fidelity to God's His law. But I thought His law was nailed on the cross. The law is the condition of what we do when we're willing to fulfill our part of the covenant. Thus the patriarchs received the hope of salvation. This same covenant, it was back in the Garden of Eden, was renewed to Abraham. It was renewed to Abraham in the promise, In thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, which is found in Genesis 22:18. This promise pointed to Christ. So Abraham understood it. He understood that it was pointing to a Savior that's going to come. And he trusted in Christ. Now Christ hadn't come yet. But he trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of sin. It was this faith that was accounted to him, Abraham, for righteousness. The covenant with Abraham also maintained the authority of God's His law. What this is a saying is accepting this covenant of grace, what was called the new covenant, with the future sealing of the covenant at the cross of Jesus by faith, that the keeping of God's law was accounted was an evidence of accounting to Abraham for righteousness. It's not that the law was saving him, but he believed in the Savior. And the keeping of the law was his part of the covenant to say, I believe, I will do all that you say. This is the covenant of grace. Or it's called the New Covenant. And it's found in the Old Testament. And it's ratified by the blood of Jesus on the cross. Now look at this in the book Patriarchs and Prophets. Pages 371 and 372. But if the Abrahamic covenant, that covenant of grace, contained the promise of redemption... Why was another covenant? Remember, there was two covenants. Why was another covenant formed where? Sinai. In their bondage, the people had to had to a great had to a great extent lost the knowledge of God and of the principles of the Abrahamic covenant. They've lost the knowledge of God. They really didn't understand God. Not only that, they didn't understand that the conditions of the covenant was to be able to fulfill the law, but to realize by faith that it would be in the sacrifice that God would make when He'd send His Son at a future date. They didn't understand that. So in delivering them from Egypt, God sought to reveal to them His power and His mercy that they might be led to love and trust Him. 
What does He want them to do? He wants them to trust Him. And He wants to say, I'm going to lead you to the promised land. But you've got to trust Me. But they didn't know anything about Him. So He brought them down to the Red Sea where pursued by the Egyptians, escape seemed impossible. That they might realize their utter helplessness. I can't escape them. What are we going to do? Their need of divine aid. And then He wrought deliverance for them. Thus they were filled with love and gratitude to God. And with confidence in His power to help them, He had bound them to Himself as their deliverer for temporal bondage. Keep this idea on temporal bondage. But, seems like there's always a but, isn't there? But, there was still greater truth to be impressed upon their minds. Living in the midst of idolatry, and they had no true conception of the holiness of God, of their exceeding sinfulness of their own hearts, their utter inability in themselves to render obedience to God's law, and their need of a Savior, all this they must be taught. Notice, the people of God had seen evidence of a God that would deliver them, and for a moment they believed and they followed Him, but when things got tough, they didn't really realize their sinfulness and their inability to do as God says. So when things got tough, you know, they just didn't want to know, they didn't know if they wanted to follow Him anymore. But they, but when God says, you know, this is what I want, here's my commandments, they said, look, we'll do whatever you say. When, they, when things are going good, they're yelling out, Amen to, Oma, to Moses. And when he suggests keeping a covenant with God, they says, We will do anything. But when times get tough, they began to make excuses. They began to say to Moses, You know, we were better off in Egypt. And look where you brought us clear out here in the middle of nowhere. God's going to starve us to death. There's no food out here. We're thirsty. There's no water. And you know what, Moses? It's all your fault. You're supposed to be our leader. Let's continue on. God brought them to Sinai. He manifested His glory. They saw the mountain shaking and they saw the thunder and heard the thunder and saw the lightning. He gave them His law with the promise of great blessings on condition of obedience, saying, If you will obey my voice indeed and keep my covenant, then you shall become unto me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Exodus 19, verse 5. The people did not realize the sinfulness of their own hearts. And that without Christ, it was impossible for them to keep God's law. They weren't thinking of the coming Messiah. That wasn't on their minds. And they readily entered into a lopsided covenant with God, feeling that they were able to establish their own righteousness. They declared, all that the Lord has said will we do and be obedient. Exodus 24, verse 7. They had witnessed the proclamation of the law in awful majesty and had trembled with terror before the mount and yet only a few weeks passed before they broke their covenant with God and bowed down to worship a graven image, that golden calf. They could not hope for the favor of God through a covenant which they had broken. Notice when Moses didn't return from Mount Sinai as they thought he would. They forgot their covenant with God. They forgot how he had led them. And they began practicing the religion that they had learned in Egypt, the worshiping of the calf. Let's read on. And now seeing their sinfulness and their need of pardon, they were brought to feel their need of the Savior revealed in the Abrahamic covenant. 
and shadowed forth in the sacrificial offerings. Now by faith and love they were bound to God as their deliverer from the bondage of sin. Now they were prepared to appreciate the blessings of the new covenant. The terms of the old covenant were obey and live. The new covenant was established upon better promises, the promise of forgiveness of sins and of the grace of God to renew the heart and bring into harmony with the principles of God's law. The old covenant was to obey God on your own power in order to try to live. But when times get tough and you see you can't obey and sometimes you're confronted with your sins and you see that you need a rescuer to help you, then you come to a realization that I need a new covenant with God. Not based on what I have done, but based on what He has done. I need a Messiah. I need Jesus, the living sacrifice. I need the high priest of heaven to be the go-between. I need the one who sends the help in the form of the Holy Spirit to give me strength and power and to know that I have that strength and power, that the measure to be able to measure that is God's holy law. The old covenant will do as you say on our power. It's lacking faith in the one who will deliver us. It's what Jesus said would happen in the last days when he said, the church, the last day church is going to say, I'm rich, I've become wealthy, and I have need of nothing. Jesus says, but you do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. The new covenant is a covenant by faith in divine power. We will do as you say because of your divine power. That's why Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. To him who overcomes, that's overcoming self, I will grant to sit with me on my throne as I also overcame. When did Jesus overcome? The Garden of Gethsemane. When he said, Is there any other way? Nevertheless, not my will, but thine will be done. And he said that out of pure faith because he couldn't see eternal life for himself. It wasn't based on anything. It was based solely, solely on the promise of his Father that there would be forgiveness of sins that His sacrifice would be the best sacrifice to be able to give to us eternal life. And He was willing to face death throughout all eternity if it would mean that we could be in heaven forever and have eternal life. And that's love. Matthew 5, verse 17. Jesus said, Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I didn't come to destroy, but to fulfill. Jesus didn't come to, to nail the law to the cross. That's, that's part of the covenant. Didn't Jesus keep the law of His Father? says that He didn't know any sin. He kept it perfectly. If Jesus is our example, the question is, can we do the same? Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. There's no longer I who lives. Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. I recognize my sinfulness and that I cannot change myself. But Jesus was a sacrifice. And I'm going to crucify my sinful self and let Jesus live within me. Romans 7, verse 24 and 25. Here's what Paul said. He looks at himself and he says, Oh, wretched man that I am! 
Who's going to deliver me from this body of death? He saw no hope. And then he says, I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. There's his hope. So then, with the mind I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh the law of sin. I see a problem in me. I want to do, I want to do in my mind, I want to follow the law. But I see something else just fighting against that. Romans 8, verses 1 through 5, then it continues. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us. Who's fulfilling the law? Christ. The Spirit of Christ is fulfilling the law in us. He doesn't condemn the law and throw it away. He fulfills the law in us. That the law might be filled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, that's when self rules, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh sets their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. To die to self is to set our minds on the things of the Spirit that the Spirit wants to do in my life. Remember, it's a fight because we want to make excuses. We want to deny that we're doing anything wrong. We want to do things our way. And at times we want to nail the law of, of, the, of condemnation to the cross. We may even want to blame the preacher. But it takes concentration and effort to keep our minds on the Spirit-filled ways of God and it takes effort to cry out to God, if there's any other way, let it come. But nevertheless, not as I will, but I'm going to accept Your will because it is the best. Not my will because it is flawed. It has always been necessary to, for us to make this covenant with God but it is even more so now that we're getting close to the end of time. Prophet and Kings, page 299. In the last days, brothers and sisters, we're living in the last days. In the last days of this earth's history, God's covenant with His commandment-keeping people is to be renewed. I've got to make a covenant with God. Not my will, but thine will be done. And I will betroth thee unto me forever. Yea, I will betroth thee unto me in righteousness and in judgment, in loving kindness and in mercies. I will even betroth thee unto me in faithfulness, and thou shalt know the Lord. So what is the covenant that we're supposed to renew with him? It's spelled out in the book of Revelation. Here are those that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. We have to resolve to keep the commandments of God, not by my power, but by the power of the Holy Spirit that is given to me. We must be willing to have the same faith that Jesus had in the Garden of Gethsemane, when Satan tried his best to block out the presence of God within his life, and he sometimes to do, tries to do the same thing to us, we have to be willing to proclaim, nevertheless, not my will, because I'm trying to find another way. Not my will, but thy will be done. You see, I've got to see my need first. I must reach out by faith to be able to grab a hold of the hand of God. I can't afford to make excuses and try to cover my sins. I have to be willing to say, Yes, Lord, I am a sinner and I am in need of a Savior. And then I must be willing to do the will of God. And it has to be a daily commitment. It can't happen just once. Every day that has to take place. Are you willing? 
to make such a covenant with God is not easy. It's not something to say, yeah, I'll do it. I don't have anything else to do today. We're talking an eternal commitment that needs to be made every day. We need to experience, have our own Garden of Gethsemane experience right now and tomorrow and the next day to be able to fight with self and to say, nevertheless, not my will, but thine will be done. If you're willing to do that, to make such a commitment, I want you to stand with me and turn in your hymnal to hymn number 309 and to sing like you've never sung before, Do you want to surrender all to make this covenant with the Lord right now? make a call. I can't stop without doing this. I want two groups of people if they feel impressed by the Holy Spirit to come forward. First, those who say, I see my need and I want to die to self. I want to do it with baptism. We're going to be having a baptism soon and maybe for some we may have to study for a bit. But if you feel impressed and you want to come here, come forward so that I can meet with you and to pray with you. The other group may have the conviction of the Holy Spirit that I've been trying to do things totally on my power. And I see that I make excuses. And what I want to do is I want to quit making excuses. And I want to surrender it all to Jesus. If you feel the need of prayer, feel free to come forward and I will pray with you. Let's sing the third verse. The third verse.
those of you who are up here are seeking baptism or rebaptism, I want you to stay after we dismiss. Stay right here so that I can talk to you with a little bit. Gene, you'll need to greet the people at the door. Um, let's just bow our heads in prayer, shall we? Father, we've come to surrender all. That means self. The only way that we're going to be able to have eternal life is put our full faith and trust in the sacrifice of Jesus, our high priest. He's in heaven right now ministering on our behalf. And he sent to us a gift, a precious gift, a gift of power and strength, a gift that leads us closer and closer to you, a gift called the Holy Spirit who wants to live and to work within us not only to to have eternal life, but to be a witness to others by keeping the law of God, the same law that Jesus himself kept. We do want to surrender all. No more excuses. It won't work. No more trying on our own strength. We're weak. We're wretched, poor, miserable, blind, and naked. We admit it. But we feel you knocking at our heart's door right now. And we're opening our heart's door and saying, may the Spirit of Christ enter into our lives and commune with us. We're not only going to say it today, but we're going to say it tomorrow and the next day and the next day and the next day. We're going to keep saying it even the day that Jesus comes in the clouds. We're going to say, oh, thank you, Lord that you saved us not by our might and by our ability, but by your Spirit. We thank you for that gift of the Spirit now. Work in the hearts of all of these individuals and in this church is our prayer. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Those of you who are looking for baptism, stay here or rebaptism. Stay up front here. Speak with you a moment. And the rest of you, God bless you for your commitment. Please.